I'd like to begin our prayer with a word from Isaiah 57 in verse 15, where we read these words. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Father, as we think of the gods that have been invented by mankind down through the course of history, we see no god like the God of Scripture, none who has compassion on the weak and the frail, on those that have failed. Lord, we only see gods that demand the impossible. Oh, Father, I'm so grateful that the true and the living God, that the God we have come to know, is a God of compassion and mercy and loving kindness. We see this exemplified over and over again as we read through this little book of Ruth. Lord, guide us in our study this morning. We submit to your authority. Pray that as you have promised to be present here with us, that you will speak to each of our hearts according to our need. And Lord, that you will inspire us and instruct us and that we will walk from here a person better suited for your plan, more committed to your purpose, more hopeful, more trusting. Lord, I thank you for each one here and pray your blessing in each life. And as the word is proclaimed throughout this property this morning, I pray that you will be uplifted and exalted and that as your name is proclaimed around the world today, that many, many will become members of the body of Christ, will be drawn into your kingdom through the proclamation of your word. It is in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. If you'll turn to the first chapter of Ruth, let me, as we uh, begin this morning, just point out our location. And this will be the location, of course, that we remain in throughout the book of Ruth once we move back from Moab to Bethlehem. Moab is the name of this land down here. It is part of the current country of Jordan, as is the land of the Ammonites and the land of the Edomites and all those other ites that were in Transjordan, are part of the modern country of Jordan, which is a new creation, a 20th century creation, largely the product of the colonial work of the European powers. Anyway, the land of Moab was a small land down here. The people were descended from, as you remember, and I reminded you last week, Moab, who was the son of Lot through his own daughter by incest, and thus related to the Israelites, related to the Ammonites, related to the Edomites. All these people were related. And yet the only ones that were relatively consistent in following the Lord, of course, were the Israelites. Moab is located primarily on the plateau directly east of the Dead Sea. It's an area that runs three, four, five thousand feet in elevation. We do not know where in Moab Ruth and her husband had settled. We're simply told in the land of Moab. And so the story today and uh, in, in the first chapter is a story of movement back towards this border here, crossing the Arnon ultimately and returning back the King's Highway and down the reverse path that we looked at last week of Elimelech and his family, back up the uh, escarpment on the west side and past Jerusalem back to Bethlehem. So that will be the journey that Naomi and Ruth will take ultimately as we read through this first chapter 
of Ruth. So beginning at the sixth verse, then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land, in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people, giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, but we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone against me, gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi, over the past 10 years prior to this moment that we read about in the passage, had just spent the 10 most tragic years of her life. Thus, when she heard that conditions in Judah were improved, and you'll notice that she gave the Lord credit for that, food was now available, and she says in response that the Lord has visited his people in giving them food. So she acknowledges the providential hand of God. So she decides to return. She decides to return for many reasons. She wants to return, first of all, for the security, of course, of being in her own land, of, of being where food is available again, but returning to the people of her culture, the people of her family, the people of her youth. We all know the old phrase, there's no place like home. And, and that usually extends beyond our actual house, even to our community. Unless, of course, we just recently moved to a new community. Obviously, the deaths of the men in their lives had endeared these three women to each other. Naomi to Orpah and Ruth, and Orpah and Ruth to Naomi. These two young ladies, Ruth and Orpah, had moved out from their own families and into the tent, as it were, or under the coverage of the tent of the house of Elimelech by marrying Malan and Killian. And so they had departed from their own house and become a part of this other house through marriage. It seems apparent that through all of this, they had come to, come to love Naomi because of her faith in God and of the faith which reflected the characteristic of God, which we know as loving kindness, amongst other things. When Naomi began her journey from Moab back to Judah, the two young women decided to go with her. They had no other commitment at the time. They could, of course, return to their own homes, uh, but, but they had been living with Naomi for an undisclosed length of time, certainly a few years, probably. Naomi, of course, was glad for their companionship, at least until the border of Moab. 
And I pointed out to you before that the northern border of, of Moab is the Arnon River here, which flows westward out of the Transjordanian highlands into the Dead Sea. And it's a traditional border between Moab and whatever happened to be to the north. In this case, the tribe of Reuben inhabited the land there just to the north of them. At the point of the border, her love and concern for their futures, the futures of these two young lady, ladies, overwhelmed her. And as a result, we have this dialogue which goes from the 8th uh, verse all the way through the 18th verse, this dialogue between Ruth and uh, her two daughters-in-law. Ruth, uh, I'm sorry, Naomi was very well aware that Ruth and Orpah would find Judah to be as alien to them as Moab had been to Naomi. Therefore, she urged the girls to return, you notice, to their mothers. Not that their fathers weren't necessarily living, but to their mothers. The idea was to the bosom of someone who would give you love and compassion in this hour of need. As Naomi had been sharing with them, so hopefully their mothers would do so also. So she urged the two girls to return to where comfort would be theirs in their own culture. And then she did something very interesting, because as we read through this passage, we do note that she says, well, the Lord has brought this upon me, and I'm bitter because of it all, and I don't think we, have to, I don't think we should understand the word bitter in the sense of what we think of bitter. I'm bitter because of what he did. No, it, it, it's, a, it's a bitterness that's come upon her, but not that she's bitter towards God because of it. She pronounces a blessing upon the two girls in the name of Yahweh. She pronounces a blessing upon them. And, and that blessing is based upon two things. The kindness that the two girls had shown to her sons in the marriage to Malan and Killian, Ruth to Malan and Orpah to Killian. And, and then in turn, the love that they demonstrated toward her upon the death of the two boys. And so she, she proclaims a blessing upon these two Moabitesses. They had shared their love with her in the midst of their mutual bereavement, she losing her two sons and they losing their husbands. Now, I, I think it's very obvious here that Naomi had come to love these two girls as if they were her own daughters. One of the attributes of true love is selflessness. Selflessness is a Christ-like attribute. We, of course, banty around the word love in our society all the time. Oh, I fell in love with this person one enchanted evening across the crowded room, you know. And, uh, but I fall out of love two weeks later, or, you know, uh, something else of this nature. Well, that, that's not love at all. It's some kind of an infatuation. Some people like to think that you can't become infatuated once you become an adult. Well, that's not true. You can become infatuated at any point in your life. And that's really what's happening. It's not love, because true love, one of the characteristics of true love is self-sacrifice, giving of yourself to the other person. And of course, if you ever pay attention to, to the wedding vows, that's, that's incorporated there in those very vows. To her, therefore, the futures of these two girls were more important than hers. She didn't want them to end up as she was at that moment, without a husband, without any sons, any children at all. She knew that if they returned home, 
there was a chance that they would find, a good chance, because they were still young, find new husbands and yet have a hope for the future. Because in that society, true fulfillment came to women primarily through motherhood and ultimately grandmotherhood. So Naomi then gave them what she intended to be a goodbye kiss. So long, girls. You need to go home. You need to go back to your mothers. You need to find husbands. You need to raise up families that you might have a hope in a future. They cried together. But you'll notice both girls protest that they are not going to leave Naomi. They are going to remain with her. They're, they are loyal to her, they protest. And Naomi then does something very interesting. She applies tough love. Sometimes we think tough love is a modern invention, something that Dr. Dobson or somebody else invented. Absolutely not. You know, Tough love goes very back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, if you will, exhibited by God. And Naomi exhibits it here. The natural human trait is to be full of self-pity when we suffer great loss, especially if that loss seems to be inexplicable. I think if we do something stupid and lose something as a result, we, we turn that on ourselves. We blame ourselves. But when we find no cause, no obvious cause for the loss we've, we've suffered, often self-pity becomes the natural human response. But Naomi's self-sacrificing love for these two girls demonstrates, I believe, the extent to which God was in this woman's life. Now, as you read through the first chapter, you might think, well, you know, she shows a little self-pity here. She's complaining about bitter and being bitterness. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara now because I've lost all of this. I, I think in reading that, surfacely, we can get the feeling that, that Naomi had lost her faith or that Naomi was never one of much faith or Naomi was one who uh, became bitter at God. And I don't think any of that is true because of the kind of love she demonstrates be, uh, for, towards these two ladies. I, I was reading in the erudite work called The Reader's Digest, <laughs> and, and there is that one section of quotable quotes. And I was really amazed because I came to this one and it was Memoirs of a Geisha or something was the title of the book that this guy wrote. But the quote was very amazing. and I, I forgot to bring it, but it, it went something like, uh, when adversity comes to our lives, adversity strips away everything that can be stripped away and reveals who we really are. And, and that's really true. And we look at this passage and Naomi has lost everything, and so who is this woman? She is a woman whose love for these two girls is so great that she wants the best for them regardless of what it means to her. And I don't think you can have that kind of love without God in your heart. And the reason I believe that is, let me read the passage that is so familiar to you, or at least a little part of it in, um, where else but 1 Corinthians 13. We're reading, of course, about divine love. We read these words, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, 
believes all things that are true, of course, hopes all things, endures all things, endures all things, bears all things. These are truths of Naomi. She has borne loss that only falls short of the loss of Job in the fact that Job also suffered severe physical attack. But emotional attack can in many ways be more debilitating than even physical attack. Naomi, as we find recorded in the 11th and 12th verses of this first chapter in Ruth, twice said to her daughters-in-law, return my daughters, go back. And I believe she was dead serious about that. Given what women primarily live for in that day, in that society, Naomi's life seemed to be over. She, she probably could not obtain another husband because of her age. And, and certainly she probably could not have children yet. And so why should these two young women sacrifice, waste their futures just to provide companionship and solace to this lady. She could not see that that would be a way that their lives ought to be spent. And so to emphasize her point, she kept incre increasing the improbabilities as you read through that passage. First of all, she says, I have no other sons to perform the Leverite vow to you. In other words, uh, according to the law, if, if a man dies and leaves his wife childless, the next son is supposed to marry his brother's wife and bear children to the dead man. Well, there were no sons to do this. Secondly, she's implying she's too old to even have a husband. That is, that a husband would want her in, in her old age. And then thirdly, even if I did have a husband and even if I could bear sons, are you going to wait until they grow up? They haven't even yet been conceived. How old were Ruth and Orpah? I believe they were very young. Very common in those days for young girls, for girls to be married in their uh, middle teens, even sometimes in their early teens. And so I believe these girls were probably at the, at the most 20, most likely even younger than that, because Ruth and Elimelech, I'm sorry, Naomi and Elimelech were in Moab for a total of 10 years. And the, the passage does not seem to imply that the two, that Malan and Killian married these girls early in that 10-year period. It seems that several years passed, Elimelech died, and then Malan and Killian married, and so it's very probable they had only been married to these uh, two girls for a year, two, maybe three years, at the maximum five years. The fact that they had borne no children seems to indicate a relatively brief marriage because, as we discover, Ruth is capable of bearing children. So they, at such an age, could hardly be expected to wait and could hardly expect to wait until children born to Naomi, if there were any, would grow up. I mean, 20 years they'd have to wait around as widows for these kids to grow. I mean, can you imagine watching this little kid grow up and thinking, oh, this is going to be my husband when he grows up? I mean, <laughs> you know, that would be quite a, quite a thought. And of course, even if, let, let's, let's, let's make it the most young likely. Let, let's say the girls were 16 from the attitude of Ruth. I think she was a little older than that, but nevertheless. Let's just say they were 16, and let's say the boys at 16 could possibly marry the girl. We're talking about 32, you know. 
for the girls. We're, we're pressing on towards the end of the envelope here, you know. So in terms of bringing up, I mean, ch women can easily bear children long beyond 32, but what I'm saying is making it all the best possible. We're, we're looking at a, a very unlikely scenario. Naomi did not even bring up what might seem to us to have been the most satisfying and obvious solution to the whole problem. And that was the possibility of bringing the two girls to Judah to find husbands. That way you've got the best of both worlds. You have the girls with you for companionship and solace, and they yet can even find husbands and have a family. So why does Naomi not pose this as a possibility? She seems to be totally close to it. She simply says, go back to your people, find husbands, and a future for yourself. I think there are probably at least two reasons why she didn't present that option. The first is, in Hebrew culture, almost always marriages were arranged. The parents of the boy and the parents of the girl met together and arranged the marriage. <clears throat> you remember Samson. Now Samson picked the girl, but still the arrangement had to be made. And either side could have said no, especially the girl's side. So she had virtually no hope of making such an arranged marriage for two reasons. First of all, she had no dowry. I mean, you didn't just marry the girl for the girl. You married the girl for what she had also as a dowry, often. Plus the fact that uh, she had been out of contact with her own people for 10 years, and so how in the world could she make an arrangement with people she hadn't even seen for so long? But I think more importantly, secondly, the two daughters-in-law were Moabitesses. They were not Israelites. This, of course, would be the big barrier. Most true Jews would not marry a non-Jew, or a non-Hebrew, I guess I should say, because this is prior to the time that we have, quote, Jew, the word Jew being used. Most good Hebrew families would seek to marry their child to another Hebrew. Remember, let, let's go back to the story of Samson just for a minute. Fourteen chapter of, of Judges, beginning at the first verse. Then Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Notice the reaction of his parents. Then his father and his mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you would go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, that was not a unique attitude. That was a common attitude amongst the Hebrews. Marry your own people. Of course, God had given a prohibition against marrying the people of the land, that is the Canaanites. He had not given a prohibition against marrying Moabites, Edomites, and Ammonites because they were related to Israel. But he had given a prohibition against all of the Canaanites, you know, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and Hivites, and all the others of that nature. But these tended to be lumped together. And later on, if you study in some of the prophets, you'll discover, I believe it was in Jeremiah, that the Moabites were lumped together with the, oh no, it was in Ezra, where the Moabites were lumped together with the Canaanites as people that were considered foreign and shouldn't be, have been married by the Hebrews. 
at the time of Ezra. And he got, you know, Ezra sat down appalled, the scripture says, and pulled his hair out and pulled his beard out because his people had married all of these foreigners. Naomi ended her plea with the girls to go back home with a statement that it is harder, and the, and the literal word there is more bitter for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She was saying that although the losses of the men in their lives was hard for all of them, and she acknowledged it was hard for Ruth and Naomi to have lost their husbands, but for Naomi, it was more bitter because she had no hope of acquiring another husband or having more sons. Whereas for the girls, the situation was not as bleak because they were young enough to acquire yet husbands and to yet have children and yet fulfill the meaning of their lives. And I believe that was truly what Naomi wanted for Ruth and Orpah. They had been wonderful to her, and she felt they deserved to have their heart's desire. Naomi's last statement in verse 13 indicates that she knew that God was sovereign and that he was personally involved in the lives of his people. And, you know, I, I think that's one of the most important truths to not only derive, and we know this very clearly from the New Testament, but to acknowledge that the people in the Old Testament knew that too. They knew that God was sovereign and they knew he was imminent, that he was here, that he worked in the lives of his people. I think there may have been just a tad of self-pity on the part of Naomi, and of course, why wouldn't there be, you know, if you or I were in her situation? It's a little bit of, of self-pity. I, I, I emphasized this last week, you, you may remember. We all have a tendency when bad things come to say, why me, Lord? And as I, I tried to emphasize last night, say it to the Lord. Say it. If you think it, say it. God wants us to bear our hearts to him and to say what we truly believe or think because that's the only way we can begin to experience his love and his grace and his healing is as we're honest before him and he's very secure in his throne and so any challenge to him is not going to upset him but honesty is very important before God. I, I think however that the primary thrust of her statement here is an acknowledgement that God brought this great bitterness into her life for reasons that she will not explain, I think because she could not explain them. She, she, she couldn't say, oh, well, it's because, <laughs> it reminds me of that song that we sometimes, my wife and I sometimes jokingly sing from The Sound of Music, in which it goes, uh, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's why this good thing is happening, you know, to me. <laughs> right. And we have a greater tendency to think, well, sometime in my youth or childhood, I must have done something bad, and that's why this bad thing is happening to me. Not necessarily at all. With hindsight, we can see that out of Naomi's pain and suffering came the salvation of Ruth and the role Ruth would play in propagating the line of David and ultimately the line of Messiah. You and I may go through pain, and it may not be because of something as, as, as majestic as this, but it's because there is a plan that God has, and that pain plays a role in that plan. 
I think Naomi may have understood sometime during her lifetime the salvation of Ruth part of it. But of course, she certainly had no clue as to the ancestry of David and Messiah part of this because she would die uh, long before that would be revealed. But this, I think, is a clear lesson to us. If we are living for the Lord faithfully every day and pain and suffering comes into our lives, it is more likely than not that we will never know in this life the reason for that pain and that suffering. However, I think it is our place to be as Naomi and Job were, to have faith that God is doing what is right and to know that uh, our faith in the Lord is strengthened through affliction. This verse was very meaningful when I looked it up to me related to this. Uh, it's not on your outline, but let me turn to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, <clears throat> we read in verse 10, a really encouraging verse, statement from the Lord. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. In other words, it may be an utter cataclysm. But the Lord's loving kindness towards us is not altered, is not diminished, is not transferred. It remains. And the Lord's covenant of peace, shalom, and of course, as you know, the word shalom in Hebrew is, not, is a lot more than just political peace. It has to do with total well-being of a person. That that will not be shaken. The Lord gives a unilateral covenant. No matter what the tragedy is, it will not be shaken because he is a Lord of compassion. And then in, in explaining how this, this works out in us, in 1 Peter, the first chapter, we have these verses, which I'm sure many of you have read on many occasions as your lives have bumped up against walls along the way. 1 Peter 1.6 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How important is faith in God? Absolutely the most important thing in this life in our human existence is faith in God. You and I cannot live the Christian life without it, without faith in God. Because you all know the statement in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please God. I mean, we can sing with our arms uplifted and we can give money in the offering and we can do all these things, but if we do not have faith in God, it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing, means nothing. To me, today, it's really important in our society where 
we're getting more and more into this kind of a showy kind of Christianity or showy kind of worship to, to keep returning to the basics of the fact that it's how we live our day by day walk before God and the faith we have in Him which demonstrates the truth of our faith and our salvation and impacts the world. Far more people are going to be brought to true faith by watching a solid Christian live through hard times with faith in God as Naomi did here than going to some show glitzy service of some kind. Well, after listening to uh, Naomi's urgings, Ruth and Orpah wept together with her. The major difference, however, between the two women then emerged. Orpah chose to follow Ruth's advice and go home to get comfort and to seek a husband to have a more certain future than any future she could see with Naomi. But Ruth, on the other hand, demonstrates a selfless love for Naomi that was so genuine that she chose to go with Naomi into a very uncertain future in an alien land, an alien culture, no promise of a husband. She chose to do that so that she could minister to Naomi. And what is fascinating about this passage is it tells us that the extent of Ruth's commitment, because it says she clung to Naomi. And the Hebrew word there, which is translated clung, is the same word Joshua used when he exhorted Israel to hold fast to the Lord, cling to the Lord. Put your all into, I mean, become adhesive tape and stick to God, you know. And that is the way Ruth has made her commitment to Naomi. It implies total commitment. And that is an alien word in our culture. It's an alien concept in our culture. Total commitment. People cannot seem to be totally committed to anything anymore except to self-indulgence. It seems to be the only thing common in our society to which people can commit themselves. Well, let, let's read the next few verses here in Ruth 1. Then she said, Naomi said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she, that is Naomi, saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. That is a, one of the most beautiful passages of all of Scripture. Uh, because I think we have to, as we look at that passage, and, and we'll, we'll have to, I think, look at it in detail next week, but think of it in, in this sense. That commitment that Ruth is making to Naomi is not a commitment that is possible totally on the basis of human love, phileo, if you will. It's a commitment that can only be genuine as God has entered the heart of this woman and given her the capacity to make such a commitment.
That is why love in our society, as they call it, is so non-adhesive, because it is not filled with the love of God. It is not a love infused with agape, the, the divine love, which should fill the lives of every believer, so that our love for one another is genuine. Our love for one another reflects the love that God has for us. It's not a whimsical kind of, quote, love that is so characteristic in our society. And of course, it's made, been, been made popular by the entertainment field, where you have serial marriages ad infinitum or ad nauseum is really more it. And there, there's, there's no real sense of, of the meaning of love. It's a self-fulfilling kind of attachment. As long as you gratify my needs, I will, quote, love you. But what, what does Naomi have to offer Ruth? What does Naomi have to offer, offer Ruth? Nothing but the example of what God has done for Naomi. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. Looking at that kind of situation where Yahweh is being seen by Ruth and Naomi. And Ruth says, that is the kind of love I want. That's the kind of relationship with God I want. Not the kind of relationship that the Moabites had with their god, Chemosh. We'll talk about that in a little more detail next week. But something that was deeper and further than, than anything this world has to offer. And I think this indicates that Ruth has already come to a place of making an inner commitment to the God that was worshipped by Naomi. And so when we read her statement there, your God, your Elohim is my Elohim. That's her testimony. That's her statement of faith. And I think it's a, a genuine one. And so as we look further at the lives of these two women, and what God does in them and through them, and, and how God just opens a door to, to a miracle, you know, that through this little Moabitess woman, a nobody living out there in the plateau of Moab who, who would have died like vast billions of history have died, absolutely incognito, would be part of the lineage of Messiah. It's fantastic. Something, of course, that only God in his great mercy and love could do. Well, we'll look further next week at that passage.